We are continuing and soon wrapping up our study of Paul's epistle to Titus in the New Testament. Next week, God willing, will be our final consideration of this book. And we've been taking it slowly, a few verses at a time. It is a short book. Today, however, I'd like, uh, in order to lay the groundwork for what is ahead of us in Titus 3, 8 to 11, I'd like us to look at a longer passage in the Old Testament in the prophet Isaiah, beginning at Isaiah 59, reading through chapter 59, on into three verses of chapter 60. Isaiah 59, 1 through 60, verse 3. Then we'll turn to a shorter passage in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, before turning at length to Titus 3. Here's what the Lord says. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. And there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday, as in the twilight, among those who are vigorous. We are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our 
iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his enemies, recompense to his adversaries. To the coastlands, he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now and forever. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And now we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Titus chapter 3, our sermon text, verses 14 to 16. I'm sorry, Titus 3, verses 8 to 11. Verses 8 to 11. Paul writes, this is a trustworthy statement. 
And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. Of lost sinners whose rebellion against Christ separates them from the sunshine of his favor, Isaiah writes, they don't know the way of peace. They've made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. And he makes the situation especially memorable for us at the end of his 57th chapter, where he says, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And don't we find it to be just exactly so? In relationships, in the family, in the church, in the state, in the culture at large, wherever sin is at work unchecked by grace, it raises the dust cloud of Pharaoh's pursuing army. It's the perpetual pounding of the surf against the rocky shore. Sinners stir up trouble, needless trouble, needless unhappiness, because they're tossing up refuse and mud. Lost sinners leave the otherwise clear water of our relationships murky, unwholesome, until the one finally comes with the power to bid those waters be still. When the Redeemer in the fullness of time came to Zion, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Peace. Peace with God, peace with one another is the church's rightful inheritance. And yet what the church has found to the present day among those who pass through her doors, even among her own membership, what the church has found is trouble aplenty. Most of the letters of the New Testament, you may remember, are, in a sense, heaven's response to troubled hearts in troubled churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're quickly coming to the end of Paul's pastoral letter to Titus. And although it's true, and even because it's true, we may find it helpful to glance backward across the page to see whether we're still on track uh, 
with the mind of the Spirit. Because as you know, sometimes uh, it sometimes happens that a preacher gets caught up in all the eddies and whirlpools of the few verses he's preaching on that week and loses the sense of the river's main current, the main purpose God intends. So let's briefly look back over this epistle to Titus. Paul wrote this letter, chapter 1, verse 1, for the faith and knowledge of God's elect. And this not a mere academic knowledge, but an experiential one, the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. He writes upon the subject of eternal life, verse 2, that eternal life to be found only through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 3. And here's the point. This is the main current of the river of thought, that this life in Christ, about which he is writing, this life in Christ is to be lived. We don't just talk about it. Christians aren't people who just think about eternal life and talk about eternal life. We don't just come up with diagrams explaining eternal life to others. The truth and the glory of it is that we are privileged to live it. Every moment of every day, we live it. If you're a Christian, you're living that life right now. You walk with God even now in your present circumstances in the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's what separates you from your unbelieving neighbors who are still lost, who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, who are still without faith and without knowledge. Even they, from time to time, think about eternal life, don't they? Ecclesiastes puts it this way, God has set eternity in their hearts. A loved one dies and you wonder what became of him. You wonder whether you'll ever see him again. You wonder what the circumstances of eternity might be. The question crosses the mind of unbelievers faced with this brute fact of our own mortality. But apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, your unbelieving neighbors have no authoritative answers. None. The best he can do is to speculate, to opine and hope, or rather wish that his loved one, and sooner or later he himself, are somehow good enough to stand on their own merits before the righteous, holy, all-seeing God with whom they have absolutely no acquaintance. But of course, it's a forlorn hope. It's false, it's foolish, it's fatal, because it lacks the knowledge both of God and of man that's revealed in the Bible, separate from Christ. Strangers to the covenants of promise, they're without hope and without God in the world. That's how Paul put it. As we all once were. All of us. 
Apart from this gospel and the light that it sheds on your situation, sin runs its troubled, turbulent course for 70 or 80 years of your mortal life, and then you die, and you perish in hell, and that's that. For all have sinned. All come short of the mark. That's the way life and death is for those without the knowledge of God. But a light for all the nations of the world then shines within the church where Christ is preached. Titus, my true child in a common faith, lets you and I in our respective situations dedicate ourselves to establishing the church of our Lord Jesus Christ and this sound doctrine of which she, the church, is the pillar and foundation. For this reason I left you in Crete, says Paul, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed. So the apostolic objective, the end state, is a peaceful, industrious church of God's elect, growing in number, growing in holiness, shining as the very light of the world as we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. That's what the apostles were committed to because it's what Christ committed himself to, building the church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. And what a glorious work it is. What a glorious work. Now, what resources does Titus have to work with as he discharges this great commission? What are the raw materials at hand for building the church on the Mediterranean island of Crete? Well, the church, whether in Crete or in San Antonio or anywhere, the church is built of two things. In his left hand, as it were, Titus has the people of Crete, the population, all of which, unfortunately, all of whom, unfortunately, happen to be, by everyone's admission all around, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that they are this not only by nature as children of Adam, but by careful cultural conditioning as well to lie, to cheat, to shirk responsibility, and to get away with it in Crete is a mark of national distinction. In Crete, they wear it like a badge of honor to be dishonorable. It's like the sexual perversions in Corinth or in some of our European and American cities today. They're proud of their sin. They'd have sloth pride rallies and gluttony parades if any Cretan could be found with the initiative to organize them. That's the culture that Titus is up against in Crete. And if he were merely a natural man, if he were a man unfortified, 
by the Holy Spirit, looking at his commission and his circumstances in a merely natural way. Once he got this letter from Paul, don't you suppose he'd be dashing off a letter back to Paul, which might read something like this, Titus to Paul, grace, mercy, and peace be yours. Hey, about this assignment, you know, Dalmatia's looking pretty good to me right now. And there's lots of work to be done in Macedonia. Aren't there some vacancies in Rome? How about Cyprus? How about Spain? How about any place but here? Any place but Crete? If he were a natural man. But the Christian minister, the spiritual man with faith in God and some starch in his character, looks at his situation and says to himself, here we have an opportunity. Compulsive liars here. Evil beasts stabbing one another in the back over there on the left. Lazy gluttons lounging around the buffet table over there on the right. Every one of them, a hopeless, helpless sinner, lost in his own sin. Thank God he sent me here. Because these, and not the righteous, are exactly the kind of people Jesus came to save. Abundance of sinners is, for the Christian minister, a target-rich environment. It's an evangelist's paradise. But this is so only because of that second resource needed to build the church. The one Titus held, as it were, in his right hand. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. That which Paul calls on another occasion, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know why Christians shouldn't be intimidated by the gospel work that we see before us? You do if you've carefully considered verses 3 through 7, as we did last week. Let's briefly review those verses. First of all, he says, For we also once were disobedient ourselves. Disobedient deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, And we poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So have no fear. Because this is the gospel of the free grace of God triune. Your past as a sinner doesn't tie his hands. God isn't constrained to pass over the lazy, the liars, the gluttons, or the cheat. 
the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. This is good news, really, really good news that transforms people, that transforms cities and societies and nations according to the good pleasure of Almighty God who works in human hearts whenever and wherever and however he pleases. Over the last 2,000 years, this news changed the world by embodying the hope of the world both east and west. But it hasn't done this, and it won't do this, and it really can't do this by languishing in dark silence between the covers of a book, between the covers of a closed book. Terrible things happen, in fact, when this light of the world, announced for ages by the prophets, now manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ, terrible things happen when that is hidden under a peck measure. This life in Christ is to be lived. Out in the open. Christians are to shine. So have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then it's time to get down to pleasing him, honoring him by those deeds that are good and profitable to all men. Throughout this first quarter of the 21st century, there's been an international surge of curiosity about the teachings of the Quran. You can trace much of that interest in the Quran to one particular incident on one particular Tuesday morning of our nation's history. I have to confess I haven't had the persistence to read an English translation of the Quran through from cover to cover, but I've read the Bible through, and it takes not more than a few pages of the Quran to discover that it goes a very different direction from the Word of God. I've not read the Quran through, but I can tell you, dear friends, that there's a vital connection between the quality of a tree and the quality of the fruit it produces. The quality of your message and the quality of your life. Here's my point. If you're a Christian born of the Spirit, nourished on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what he says of himself in John 8, verse 12, he says with equal force of you in Matthew five fourteen That as long as you are in the world, you are the light of the world. You. So all these things Paul's been writing about sound doctrine isn't just about bare-naked doctrine at all, is it? It's not about words alone. It's not about wrestling over words or winning arguments by clever persuasion. Christianity is about a life well lived. A life well lived. 
together as the church for the love of God and love of neighbor by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. And no rival religion, no rival philosophy or worldview, whatever its control of the presses, whatever its control of the legislatures or the courts or the sword, none of them can hope to produce the equal of one of the least of these, Christ's little one. The vast treasures that the Holy Spirit pours into you, the little clay pot that you are, the treasures he pours into you make you a part of the treasure. Concerning these central things about the gospel, God enjoins us to speak confidently. Courage counts. In your Christian walk, courage counts. Certainly it does among pastors and evangelists like Titus. And once we have our very own pastor here, I hope you'll encourage him to single-mindedness in this great calling that he has to preach the gospel of life in Christ. A life lived in the might and power of the Holy Spirit, in season, out of season. Let him concentrate his full expositional powers over the course of his ministry on this one trustworthy statement, the gospel summarized in verse 7, or 3 through 7. Now you might say, but that's only five verses. What about the other 30,000 verses of the Bible? Don't you think he should preach on them from time to time? And of course, he should and he will. But when he does, it'll all be to some degree an unfolding of this one truth. The mystery of the gospel for long ages concealed, now revealed in Christ. Dear friend, these five verses, verses three through seven, take us from where we once were to where we are now by grace to where we will one day be when the fullness of the inheritance is ours. This single trustworthy statement encapsulates our bright hope in God. It's the sun from which all sound doctrine emanates as rays of sunshine Sound doctrine, all issues from the saving work of God triune, and all must lead back to him in songs of praise and thanksgiving. It's absolutely vital that we understand this need to concentrate on what's important, what is central, because our culture and our flesh and the devil himself are doing all they can to take us off the trail. What may happen is this. I'm thinking ahead to the future of this congregation, the future pastor that we have. What may happen and sometimes happens is this. Your pastor is going to start out doing faithfully what Christ and you, the church, called him to do. Every day he'll be on his knees praying for you. Throughout the week he'll have his eyes and ears open, assessing the pastoral needs of the congregation. 
He'll be spending an hour in the study for every minute he spends in the pulpit preaching. He'll be translating the scripture, outlining its main and subordinate thoughts. He'll be doing all the exegetical and hermeneutical work. He'll be comparing what he finds in his own study with what he finds in the study of others. All of this to feed you, the flock of Jesus Christ committed to his care. And then, sooner or later, a day may come when someone, maybe not even someone in his own congregation, comes up to him and says, you mean you haven't heard what Professor so-and-so, who had to resign from his seminary post back east because of his view on such and such, you haven't heard of that, you haven't studied that, you haven't been studying this theological trend that I learned over here in the leftist theological journal? Well, have you heard about this movement? Have you seen this article? Have you read this book or seen this movie? Have you experienced this? Why not? Well, what about what they're saying over here about women in the church? What they're saying over there about Christian music? What about the nation of Israel? What's going on these days in the Middle East? What about Reverend So-and-So's best-selling 10 Steps to Guaranteed Financial Prosperity? Why aren't you acquainted with these things? Why aren't you able to easily discourse on them? Now, your pastor certainly owes the inquirer an honest answer. But that answer may very well be I don't know. I don't much care. That's not my lane. Those aren't my people. If I have time, maybe I'll get to it. Now let me get back to the gospel of Christ crucified and its impact on our lives and families here at home. Now he does this politely, but he has to do it eventually. He'll have to do it. The reason he has to do it is given here in verse Nine, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. You may have noticed over the weeks of our study that I've resisted crossing over from the book of Titus into the other two pastoral letters to Timothy in my exposition of this one. That's because they're different letters to different men in different places ministering in different situations. But this challenge of divisive people, and it's people of either sex, as the word anthropon in verse 10 implies. It's not men, males, but people. Factious person. This challenge to the peace of the church is so plain throughout the New Testament that up to the present day that it bears some emphasis from the other New Testament writers and witnesses. In Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and following, Paul foresees the threat of savage wolves infiltrating the Ephesian eldership as early as his second missionary journey. Some of that threat to the peace and security of the church would come 
as influences from outside. But he goes on to say, and you can practically see the tears welling up in Paul's eyes there on the beach at Miletus. He says, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That was in Ephesus. It was a problem in Galatia very early in New Testament history as the faction of the Judaizers gained a foothold in the church, insisting as they did that church membership comes only through faith plus circumcision. Faith plus the works of the law. Factions divided the Corinthian church, for sure, in several different directions. Paul says to them, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Proving, incidentally, that the clannish pride and provincialism of sinners is such that we don't even require doctrinal differences to divide us. Sinners and even saints this side of glory will manage to find trouble even when there's none to be found because the messages of these three men named was not different. It's the same message. The doctrinal and practical troubles Diotrephes caused the church were the catalyst for the apostle John's writing to Gaius in his third letter, saying, watch out for this guy. Jude. Jude wanted to write the church about our common salvation, but he had to shift his focus instead to deal with certain persons who have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm not done because the New Testament isn't done. The letters of Jesus to the seven churches of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, are full of references to factions and factious divisive persons who are either being rightly put to the test or else indiscriminately coddled by their several congregations. And then, getting to the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy 1, 3 and following, Paul reminds Timothy of his pastoral charge again back in Ephesus. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, he says, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction, he goes on to tell Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere Faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand 
either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. It was a New Testament problem. This is precisely the know-it-all spirit animating the people that Titus had to silence in Crete, as we saw in chapter 1. Miserable people whose only joy comes from making their own distinctive mark on the church and its theology. Regardless of whether it comports with the gospel, regardless of the people and families who get hurt in the process. Their contribution to congregational life is just to keep stirring the pot. Never letting it settle never letting the peace of Christ reign in the hearts of his beloved people, that blessed peace of Christ Jesus alone, received by grace alone, through faith alone. Some of these men will be swindlers, like the man who wormed his way into the confidence of a large Reformed Presbyterian church in western Pennsylvania back when I was in college. Mr. Smith was the name he used. Purportedly a Christian man who took Christian people's money and invested it for them in Christian businesses. He did this, at least the taking Christian people's money part, he did this up until the day when he stopped showing up at church and was never seen or heard from again. But the majority of troublemakers on settling the peace of the church are going to be these self-important people who make a big noise majoring in the minors. They'll sit through a sermon well enough, but what really keeps them coming back week after week is the fact that, now maybe we haven't seen this so much here in a new mission church and now newly established congregation, but I've seen it in well-established churches up north. People who come back week after week Because great uncle Herman, 40 years ago, was a deacon in the church. And he married the daughter of Dr. So-and-so's half-sister, Clara Bell. And that means that if no one else in the world owes me any respect, at least these people sitting around me do. Because of my relationships to others. Because they know their church history. Because they know who's important. And I'm related to it. They majored in minors. And then there are those in the church with a theological bone to pick. I wish I could say these were all wild-eyed, green seminarians, young men with no significant life responsibilities and time on their hands. Some of them are. But others really are old enough and experienced enough in the church to know better. Maybe you've known of churches that harbor people like this. I seem to have pastored more than my share, but the law of averages and a merciful God finally seem to have come to my aid. What I'm talking about are people, and these are church members, who will swoop down on an unsuspecting first-time visitor and without so much as a word of welcome to them, begin pumping this poor victim, this fresh meat, with theological questions. 
Well, what do you think about the human soul? Does it come from the human parents or is it a direct creation of God? Are you a traditionist or a creationist? Are you a supralapsarian or an infralapsarian? Are you pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill? And the poor visitor, there for the first time, stands there like a frightened rabbit. What's he going to say? He came to hear the gospel. Maybe to meet some nice people. And he's getting the third degree from this wild-eyed stranger he's never met before. And the effect is that once he finally breaks away to the church parking lot, he takes a little book out of his vest pocket and he draws a line through the name of your congregation. So what's the church to do? Thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit has always been very practical about these things. After all, like we've said again and again here, the Christian life is for living. Your gospel light is for shining, and a shining light dispels the darkness. What do we do with that person? We warn him once. We warn him twice. And then if need be, after a first and second warning, you hand him his hat, you hand him his coat, and you hand him a hearty welcome elsewhere. Does that sound harsh? The factious individual has been warned about his behavior twice. He's been warned for the good of the church, dear friends, for the good of the church. Listen, throughout the history of Israel, there's always been this very special place for the ceremonially unclean, those who are unfit to worship for a time. It's a very special place called outside outside the camp. Now, does that mean that you stop loving them? Does Israel stop loving her leprous neighbors? Does Israel stop loving her brothers or sisters or moms or dads with running sores or other situations that render them unfit to worship? Not at all. It just makes them unfit to worship. Why? Because I say so? Because your pastor or session says so? Or any mortal man says so? No, because the Holy One of Israel says so. Such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Beloved, whenever the interests of Christ's little ones are at stake, May your pastor and session roll up their sleeves to do a good shepherd's part. And with all due reverence to Christ and all love for the sinner, may the song of the whole church be that of King David in the 122nd Psalm. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. Amen.